Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7, the gospel according to gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 7. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. It's broken up into four sections, which we'll look at uh, sequentially this morning. Firstly, in an examination of those four um, individuals, and then uh, some points of application. As we come into the ministry of Jesus Christ at this particular point, it's uh, worth noting that Jesus is not content with the status quo in Israel. He here comes and challenges and changes prevailing opinion, prevailing opinion and practice. And Jesus is like that because he's Lord, but he's a loving Lord. And we see him here with similar uh, reversal, similar upsets uh, in amongst the people. Here he brings those who are on the outside in and says to those who are inside that they're out. So let's read together God's Word. After he, that is Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they would not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We have in this chapter a very visible and tangible demonstration of Jesus' love for outsiders. We have first a racial outsider in the centurion. We have secondly an economic outsider in the widow. We have thirdly a religious outsider in the disciples of John the Baptist. And fourthly, we have a moral outsider in the sinful woman. Look at each of them with me, if you would, please. 
First of all, in the opening section, verse 1 and following, we have the uh, racial outsider. Jewish attitude at the time of the Gospels, as I'm sure you are aware as good Bible students, was that Gentiles were dirty dogs. They were, if you will, the scum of the earth. They were, uh, if you came into contact with a Gentile, you had to go pursue ritual purification. It's much the same attitude uh, amongst Orthodox Jewish people today. Uh, for 20 years in South Brooklyn, uh, we lived in a, a, a Jewish neighborhood and was familiar with many uh, Jewish people. There were probably about 10 or 12 synagogues in my neighborhood, and that attitude still prevails. Goyim, unclean. Besides that, this is a Roman soldier, a centurion. Rome, of course, at the time is the prevailing empire over the region, and uh, they were uh, politically and militarily occupying Israel. And they were viewed as not only outsiders, but oppressors. They were viewed as the enemy. So the centurion is a racial outsider. He's a goyim. He's a Gentile. He's a dirty dog. He's the scum of the earth. Look at verse 3, though. He uses intermediaries to intercede for him with Jesus. <clears throat> he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When the elders go to Jesus, they think he deserves Jesus' attention. Look at verse 4. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He is the one who built our synagogues. He's not your run-of-the-mill goy, Gentile. Verse 6, we see something of the character of the centurion and his humility. When he speaks, he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Humility, unworthiness. And in verse 7, we see he has great faith. He says, just say the word. I don't even presume to come to you. Just speak, and that will be enough to heal my servant. He recognizes and acknowledges Jesus' divine sovereignty to heal and to restore his servant. The key, though, is found in verse 9. Look at the text. When Jesus heard these things from this racial outsider, he marveled at him. Now, that's significant, and you'd have to be a very good Bible student, as I'm sure at least some of you are, to catch the significance of what Jesus says here. There are only two places in the gospel accounts where Jesus marvels. Here's one. He marveled at the centurion. Why? Well, look at the text. He marveled at his great faith. The other account of Jesus marveling is in Matthew chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. He marveled at the unbelief of the Jews. Contrast. He marvels at the faith of this racial outsider, this goyim. In Matthew, he marvels at the unbelief of his own people, the covenant people, the church of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the chosen people. Unbelief, they don't believe, and it causes Jesus to marvel at them. You see, the one who is outside is brought in. 
And Jesus says, the ones that are in are out for their unbelief. Look at the next outsider, the next section beginning in verse 11. We have there, remember, an economic outsider. Why an economic outsider? Well, we're told in verse 12 that the man who had died was the only son of his mother. And in verse 12, that she was a widow. Now, I'm sure, as again, good Bible students, you're familiar with the economics uh, circumstances of New Testament times, they didn't have insurance policies, they didn't have social security, they didn't have social welfare programs as we know them today with the government to come to people's aid. If you were a widow, you had lost your head, you had lost your husband. Your husband was your provider and your protector. That responsibility naturally then would fall upon the son, but here the son has died. So to be a widow and to have lost the son means that she is economically in dire straits. She has no one to provide for her. She has no means of sustenance, and she has no means of protection. And as such, she is an economic outsider. She's completely vulnerable. According to the law in the book of Numbers, someone came into contact with a corpse, they themselves would become ritually unclean. And, let, and yet, look at the text, verse 14. <clears throat> Jesus comes up to the dead son being brought out and touched the bier. According to Numbers, that would have made him ritually unclean and in need of purification. But it's a demonstration, a very tangible one, of Jesus identifying with that which makes one unclean, that is, sin. And he fears it not. His heart goes out to this economic outsider. Look at verse 13. The Lord saw her and had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. And in this case, unlike the centurion, right, when Jesus is approached by intermediaries, here nobody approaches Jesus. He's simply filled with compassion for this woman in her need and her vulnerability. And he brings in the widow, the economic outsider, and her son, whom he raises from the dead. The third group is in verse 18 and following. These are religious outsiders. You say, hold on a minute. We're reading the Gospels. Jesus is going amongst the Jewish people. How do you get religious outsiders? Well, we're told that these were the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist were considered outcasts. Uh, John the Baptist and his disciples. Uh, John the Baptist was kind of regarded as somewhat of a kook, right? Ran around animal clothes, he ate grasshoppers, he did all this crazy stuff, right? He was regarded as somewhat of a kook, and those who followed him were considered kooks as well. They weren't part of the religious elite. We learn, for example, in John chapter 7, that they were considered accursed because they were not students of the law, of the Torah, of the Talmud, of the Jewish and rabbinical writings. So you see, they're religious outsiders. It's very interesting. They were the small people. In Hebrew, it's referred to as the Am Haaretz, that is, the people of the land. In Dutch, and if you'll pardon my Bronx accent trying to pronounce Dutch, 
You may remember that Abraham Kuyper himself referred to the little people as the Kleinerleiden. They weren't considered to be acceptable by the high and mighty, by the schooled and by the prim and proper. They were the little people. They were the Amaharits. They were the people of the earth. That's these people. And they were considered religious outsiders. But look at verse 30. Notice, right? I'm sorry, verse 29. When the people heard this in tax collectors too, they declared God just. That is, they justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They were righteous, we're being told. They were the ones who, despite their rejection by the religious elite of their day, religious establishment of their day, they're the ones who are actually righteous. And then look at verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Once again, we see the outsiders are brought in. The insiders are told they're out. Then, of course, we come to the fourth outsider. We have the racial outsider in the centurion. We have the economic outsider in the widows lost her son. We have the religious outsiders in the disciples of John the Baptist. And we have the moral outsider in the sinful woman. There can be no doubt about her reputation in the community. She was that kind of woman. Everyone knew what kind of woman she was. And Luke is at pains to make sure that you know that too. Three times in the text, we're told that she's a sinner. Look at verse 37. Verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Look at verse 39. Uh, This woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then again in verse 47, Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Luke wants you to be under no illusion about the moral character of this particular woman. She was known in the community, and Luke wants you to know it too, that she was a woman of ill repute. She was that kind of woman. Women about whom we have certain words which I won't speak from this pulpit. But let us not be in any doubt as to what kind of woman she was. She's a moral outsider. Perhaps we would say, she's not our kind of people. But she had heard Jesus forgive sins and exhibits great love for him. Remember in Jesus' day, he would be considered defiled by contact with such a woman. Look at Simon's hidden thoughts. Very interesting. Luke records the hidden thoughts of Simon the Pharisee. Look at verse uh, Verse 30, uh, 38, 39, sorry. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's speaking to himself, right? We all do that, right? We're thinking, right? 
somebody comes in, they're kind of, you know, different, whatever. We have our own thoughts about that. That's what Simon's doing. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Doesn't he know he'll be defiled by coming into contact with somebody like this? Look at verse 40. Jesus read his mind, and he he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answers Simon, even though Simon didn't speak. And what does he do? He tells a parable about forgiveness, and then applies it to Simon. Look at verse 44. I won't repeat it. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Her palpable, demonstrable love for me and regard for me puts yours to be pale by comparison. Oh, no. It's non-existent, Jesus says. Look at verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Her past is gone. For anyone that's in Christ is a new creation, and the old is gone, and the new has come. Luke intends and wants you to be certain what kind of woman this is. But equally and perhaps even more important, he wants you to know that she is no longer that kind of woman. She is no longer defined by her past that brought her to this point. Her sins are forgiven, and she is a new creation in Jesus Christ. She's brought in close to God's heart. And Simon, who was in, demonstrates that he's out. Fascinating chapter, isn't it? Let's have some points of application. First of all, if you're a Christian... I'm sure you've heard this a million times. You're, you're, you're a little Christ. That's what a Christian is, right? And you and I are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Your attitude, my attitude, your actions, my actions to outsiders are to reflect those of Jesus Christ. To racial outsiders. Who are the racial outsiders in this community? Do they know the attitude and actions of Christians? Who are the economic outsiders? Who are the religious outsiders? Those perhaps that we might look down our nose on as not as theologically astute or confessionally sound. Who are the moral outsiders that are lost and need to hear? message of forgiveness. Do you respond to such outsiders with disapproval, condemnation? Keep your distance. 
That's the, those, that's the response of those without the heart of Christ who have no answer to the problem of sin. Christ and Christians bring people to Christ who can deal with sin and who can bring them in to be part of the God, people of God, to purify their lips so that together we might sing the praises of God's grace. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 6. It's very interesting that uh, Paul categorizes the Corinthians here, and I think, in general, we probably focus on the wrong part of this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm sure you all know the text. You're good Bible students. We focus on verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we focus on that warning, and we, and, and we say, these, these are people that are not going to be in the kingdom. Right? But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is in verse uh, uh, 11. And such were some of you. Who's he addressing? He's addressing the church at Corinth. And he says, the church at Corinth is composed of people who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That, that was the composition of the church. And the significance is, Paul says that, that such were some of you, but no longer. Look, read on. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God no longer defined by your sin, but by Christ. No longer defined by your past, but new creation. No longer that behavior and that conduct, but now pursuing righteousness and peace and God and His will and living according to His Word. But you see, the point is, Paul's saying, that was the church. They were filled those kind of people. Why? Because it was those for whom Jesus came. He came to save sinners. He came to bring outsiders in. And so must we. Always be aware. Be sensitive to the marginalized in our society. Those who are the racial, economic, religious, and moral outsiders. For there may yield a fruitful harvest. Secondly, notice in our text that people come to Jesus in a variety of ways. In, uh, in chapter 7, only one comes by means of an ordained person. Only one. I think maybe by default... We tend to think of ministers as, well, that's their job, to do evangelism. It says that in Paul, right? Do the work of an evangelist. And I've said it here before, default attitude of many 
people in the churches, we pay and we pray for somebody else to do it. Let, let the ordained people who work full-time, who get paid, let them do it. But that's not what we find here, is it? It's not what we find. The centurion came by intermediaries. The widow had no one. And the sinful woman came directly to Jesus Christ. Only one by means of an ordained person. Do you know that 85% of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ and join a Christian church and are baptized into membership, 85% come through family and friends, not through ordained people at all. I encourage you in that. Third, one thing is common to all the outsiders in our chapter. I hope you caught it. It was humility. It was humility. The centurion, he said, Lord, I'm unworthy. I wouldn't even presume to come to you. Just speak and heal my servant. The widow had nothing to offer Jesus but her need. <clears throat> the people, the disciples of John, they weren't the high and mighty. They were the Kleinaliden. They were the Amaharits. They were the little people, despised, rejected, unconcerned for by the establishment. And the woman, the only thing she brought to Jesus was her sin. Humility needs to characterize disciples of Jesus Christ. If ever there was an oxymoron, it's to be a proud Calvinist. Those who confess that salvation is solely by grace, only by the sovereign intervention of God, only, not because of anything I did, anything I performed, any activity I was engaged in, anything I am in and of myself, but solely because God, the Holy Spirit, intervened in my life, broke down the barriers of my heart, and gave me repentance and faith. Many of you, I'm sure, your whole lives have never known a time when you did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God did that. God did that. An immense blessing. And God's to be praised for that. We're to be humble to the depths of our being by the grace of God. Fourthly, what we see here is a very important thing about Jesus. We see Jesus' compassion and power on behalf of his people. And we need to be assured and convinced of that for yourself, but also as you seek to be instruments in the Lord's hand to reach others. No matter what their appearance may be, no matter what their reputation may be, no matter what their status, their circumstances, their looks, their past, whatever, is that Jesus is able to reach them. I've said here years ago when I first came to do an evangelism seminar, 
that yes, I stand before you dressed in my right mind and appreciate all your kind comments and your warmth towards me when I visit. But if you had seen me when I was, before I became a Christian at 29, my goal in life was to become a Hells Angel motorcycle gang member and die before I was 30, and I was pursuing it with relentless passion. I was well on my way. As a matter of fact, I got to my 30th birthday. I had been converted late in my 29th year. I, I was like pinching myself. Am I, am I really 30? Am I really not? The point is, if you had seen me coming down the street, I'm the kind of person you probably would have crossed to the other side. But somebody opened their doors to me that didn't know me from a hole in the wall. They said, we hear you have questions and objections to Christianity. We think we have answers. Come down and spend the weekend with us. Opened their doors to me. Hospitality. Didn't know me from a hole in the wall. All they knew was I was lost and I needed Christ. They said, they, they hammered me all weekend with the gospel. They said, we think you're a neat guy. I was like, who are they talking about? I'm the only one here. You must be talking about me. We want you to become a Christian. We love you. God loves you. You need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. That weekend is what I mark as the beginning of my Christian life. Because those people didn't look at my exterior, my past. They saw someone who was lost and needed Christ. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about the heart and compassion of Jesus. His heart is still as compassionate as when he was upon earth. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong. Let us bear this in mind and take comfort in it. There is no friend or comforter who can be compared to Christ. In all our days of darkness, which must needs be many, let us first turn for consolation to Jesus, the Son of God. He will never fail us, never disappoint us, never refuse to take interest in our sorrows. He lives who made the widow's heart sing for joy in the gate of Nain. He lives to receive all laboring and heavy-laden ones if they will only come to him by faith. He lives to heal the brokenhearted, and he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He lives to do greater things than these one day. He lives to come again to his people that they may weep no more and that all tears may be wiped from their eyes. This is Jesus, the Savior my Savior, your Savior, whom people desperately need. Fifthly, allow me to emphasize what we see in the text. Those who circumstantially amongst the people of Israel were closest to Jesus are those whom we see are out. Those circumstantially at the time of Jesus who were far away from Jesus are the ones who were brought in. Take heed. And lastly, verse 47, Jesus says to the sinful woman, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much.
but he was forgiven little. Loves little. I think in the course of my 35 years in ministry, I've had occasion to attend many candidacy and ordination exams. And of course, you go through all the loci of theology and the criteria of ordination exams and candidacy exams, and oftentimes those exams go all day. The most important question is one that's hardly ever asked. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Francis Rid Ridley Habergal wrote this poem, perhaps it's a hymn, with which I conclude. Nothing to pay, yes, nothing to pay. Jesus has cleared all the debt away, blotted it out with his bleeding hand. Free and forgiven and loved you stand. Hear the voice of Jesus say, verily, Thou hast nothing to pay. Paid is the debt, and the debt are free. Now I ask thee, lovest thou me? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for such a Savior. Melt our hearts with his love and conform us to his image, that we might be increasingly more and more like him, and that more and more would come to know him as the Savior of sinners. For we ask it for Christ's sake.